The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Thank you, Dr. Jones, for an excellent and clear presentation and wonderful use of PowerPoint. I was actually going to use PowerPoint myself, but uh, as Rand just mentioned, I have a newborn at home, two toddlers, things are pretty hectic around there. So I didn't have time to put that together. And I thought, well, Joel's not going to have a PowerPoint, I know that. I thought, there's no way Dr. Jones is going to have a presentation, so it'll be fine. Uh, and if you were to stand me beside Dr. Jones and say, which one of these guys do you think is going to have a nice, fancy PowerPoint presentation? Most of you would probably put your money on me. So, alas, this is a pretty straightforward, old-fashioned lecture. How many people here watch the show Modern Family. Put up your hands. Be honest, it's okay. It's a few of you. Okay, okay. Well, if you happen to watch that sitcom on Wednesday nights, you'll know that one of the main storylines of this season is the engagement and the wedding plans of the show's gay couple, Cam and Mitch. And every Wednesday evening, millions of viewers tune in to laugh and cheer on this fictional same-sex couple. Now, part of the rhetoric of the show is to persuade its viewers that same-sex couples like Cam and Mitch are typical representative of modern families. It's the name of the show. Now, the fact that we have such couples presented on TV and the fact that Recently, we've seen changes in Canadian law, American law, to reflect this reality. These things didn't just happen overnight. They didn't just com come completely out of nowhere. There's a history that led up to this point. And from a historical perspective, this shift and this new revision in the law is nothing short of revolutionary. It is revolutionary. And it did happen in, in a fairly short period of time. Now, what I want to look at this morning is, from a historical perspective, the traditional Christian view of marriage and the inherent good of marriage, according to the Christian view. Uh, but I also want to consider what is the prevailing cultural view of marriage in our contemporary context and why are same-sex couples included in that prevailing understanding of marriage. Now, the traditional view of marriage is the biblical view. It's inspired by scripture. And I think it's most clearly articulated by one of the church fathers in the early 5th century named Augustine. Now, I happen to be a big fan of the church fathers. The church fathers are these theologians, pastors, bishops, scholars from the early church. However, I always give a warning when you're reading the Church Fathers. Reading the Church Fathers is kind of like tending a garden. You have to do a bit of weeding, and every once in a while you get pricked by thorns. And I have to say that when it comes to the issue of marriage and sexuality, that little section of the patristic garden, the garden of the Church Fathers, is particularly thorny. So I don't recommend that you turn to the Church Fathers to learn about the significance of marriage or... Sexuality. I often tell my students at Tyndale, one of the problems with the church fathers is that they were not actually fathers. <laughs> Augustine, however, 
They weren't. They were all celibate bishops. <laughs> Augustine, however, is a partial exception. He was an actual father. Before he became a Christian, he had a concubine. He was never married. He had a concubine for 15 years, and the two of them had a son together. And they appeared to have been a happy family. Now, eventually, his concubine was sent away, and his son died quite tragically as a teenager. After which, uh, Augustine, now a Christian, took a vow of celibacy. Now, celibacy and virginity were celebrated in the early church. Now, remember Jesus' answer to the Sadducees when they asked him about marriage and the resurrection. He said to the Sadducees, You know neither the power of God nor the scriptures. For in the resurrection there will be no marriage, for we will all be like the angels. That's Matthew 22, verse 30. Now one of the other church fathers, Ambrose, quotes this passage from Matthew, Jesus' words, and then he says this, I quote, He who condemns virginity condemns our desire for that resurrection. Resurrection can hardly be viewed as wrong if it is assigned as the final reward for mankind. And its likeness, virginity, can hardly be offensive if its model is approved by both present desire and future enjoyment. End quote. As the church fathers saw it, virginity was a sign of the future resurrection, a sign of eternal life in the age to come. Virginity is eternal and heavenly, whereas marriage is temporal and earthly. Now, I disagree with Ambrose and Augustine and the other church fathers on their prioritization, their celebration, excessive celebration of virginity and celibacy, but I do agree that virginity is an eschatological witness to the future life, to the resurrection. So even though this morning I will argue for evangelicals recovering a more robust, theologically informed view of marriage, I think we also need a more robust, theologically informed view of singleness, of a single life. Now, marriage and celibacy, marriage and virginity was a hot-button issue, so to speak, in the early church. In the 390s, there was a monk in Rome named Jovinian who had the audacity to suggest that marriage and virginity were equally holy vocations. Now, the church's response was swift. There was a council in Rome, there was a council in Milan, presided over by that St. Ambrose. He was excommunicated, declared as a heretic for holding such views. Another church father, one of the greatest theologians of the day, named Jerome, very quickly wrote a two-volume work entitled Against Jovinian. And he so zealously defended and, and uh, exhorted virginity and so maligned marriage that many people reading it thought, this guy sounds more like a Manichaean than a Christian. Now, Manichaeism was a, a pseudo-semi-Gnostic, religion, pseudo-Christian Gnostic religion, which actually forbid marriage. And many readers of Jerome thought, Jerome, you sound more like a Manichaean than a Christian. Now, Augustine, in the year 401, weighed in on this debate between the Christian view, the, the proper Christian view of marriage and virginity. And he wrote two treatises that year. 
The first he entitled On the Good of Marriage, and in that treatise he defends the goodness of marriage. He also wrote another treatise on holy virginity, and in that treatise he defends uh, the superiority of virginity. Now, I disagree with Augustine on this, that virginity is superior to marriage. However, in his treatise on the good of marriage, he presents a theology of marriage, which provided the theological foundation for the Christian understanding of marriage for the next 1,500 years. It's only very recently, actually, that Western society has abandoned Augustine's view of marriage as he sets it out. And his view of marriage in this treatise is, is thoroughly biblical. And as he defends marriage and as he teaches uh, on the significance of marriage, he identifies three goods. There are three inherent goods of marriage. And those three goods are children, fidelity, and sacrament. Children, fidelity, and sacrament. And he usually lists and discusses these three goods in that order. Children, fidelity, and then he always concludes with a discussion of sacrament. And he does this because he sees an ascending value in these three things. So the greatest good of marriage is that it is sacramental. Now, I know what some of you are, are thinking right now. You're all very good Protestants, I'm guessing, so your ears are starting to burn a little bit once you're talking about marriage as a sacrament. Bear with me. Bear with me. Don't, don't burn me just yet. Hear me out. <coughs> so let's consider these three goods then. The good of children, the good of fidelity, and then uh, sacrament. The first good is children. Augustine writes this, I quote, the first natural bond of society is that of husband and wife. God did not create them as separate individuals, but he created one from the other, making the side from which the woman was taken and formed a sign of the strength of their union. As Augustine sees it, this natural bond between a husband and wife isn't simply an end in itself. It serves a greater end, it serves a purpose, because the union of the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, is, in his terms, pro prolific, it's procreative, it produces children. Husband and wives are mothers and fathers. And I think any Christian couple coming together in marriage as a husband and wife is not only taking on a new vocation and identity as husband and wife, but they're also accepting a new vocation, the, possible, the possibility of becoming a father and a mother. And this goes all the way back to Genesis 1.28, where God created the male and female in his image, and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And Augustine says something kind of scandalous for the church at that time. This means that sex is a good thing. Sex is, uh, reflects the command of God, and it produces the good of children. The second good is fidelity. Now when Augustine talks about fidelity, he has primarily in view that sexual fidelity. Sexual fidelity. So what this means is that the uh, marriage relationship, there's a certain, uh, as he calls it, chastity there, which means both couple agrees that they will devote themselves exclusively to the other person, to the exclusion of all others. Now he also says that it's not just simply a prohibition against adultery. Actually, this good of sexual fidelity 
calls on the husband and wife to mutual submission in the bedroom, he says. So it's not just that we're called to not have sex outside the marriage, we're called to have sex inside the marriage. This is what Augustine says. Now, the good of sexual fidelity is this. It's actually a social good. It prevents promiscuity and it prevents the birth of children outside of marriage. So within God's design, children are born and raised within the covenant love and faithfulness of a husband and wife. That's very important for Augustine. Sexual fidelity means that children are not born outside marriage. Now, marital fidelity is not simply sexual, however. It's covenantal. Fidelity is covenantal fidelity. This is why whenever I'm giving pre-marriage counseling to a new uh, bride and groom, I strongly encourage them, I almost forbid them, from writing their own marriage vows. Usually when a bride and groom write their own marriage vows, they tend to be very sentimental and they reflect the, the romance and the emotion and the excitement of the wedding day, rather than a commitment to lifelong faithfulness. The vows in the wedding ceremony are covenantal vows, and it reflects this idea of covenant fidelity. What you're being faithful to is the promises and the vows that you make in your wedding. Now, the vows themselves actually uh, aren't up to us. It's not up to us to decide what the vows are. The vows are given to us. The, the nature of the covenant relationship is given to us by God. It's set out by God. And this is reflected in the traditional wedding vows that we all know. The bride and the groom look to each other and they promise, they vow to love and to cherish, to have and to hold for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, for sickness, and in health till death separates us. So marital love, therefore, is not an emotion, it's not a feeling. Marital love is covenantal. Because it's defined by faithfulness to your covenant vows. This is the second good of marriage. Fidelity. Now, the third good of marriage, sacrament. For Augustine, this is the most important, the most definitive good of marriage. And he understands sacrament in two ways. On the one hand, sacrament means a sign. Marriage is a sign. It points to something. On the other hand, he understands sacrament in the sense of a sacramental bond. And again, the language of covenant comes in here. Marriage is a sacrament because it's a covenant. So first, the, the sacramental sign of marriage. And actually, we can see this very clearly taught in Scripture by the way that Genesis 2, cha uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, is cited and then applied in the New Testament. And there's two instances where it's cited and applied, by Paul in Ephesians 5, and by Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew 19, Mark 10. So, in Ephesians 5.31, Paul says, he quotes Genesis 2.24, he quotes Genesis, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. As soon as Paul quotes this, he then goes on to say, This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The union of husband and wife is a profound mystery because it refers to Christ and the church. What Paul is saying is that we need to go back to Genesis chapter 2 and read it typologically. 
Because Genesis chapter 2 is actually telling us something about the relationship between Christ and the church. This is precisely what Augustine does in many different places, and I'll give you one example. Listen to this. When Christ slept on the cross, he fulfilled what had been signified in Adam. For when Adam was asleep, a rib was drawn from him and Eve was created. So also, while the Lord slept on the cross, his side was transfixed with a spear, and the sacraments flowed forth, from which the church was created. For the church, the Lord's bride, was created from his side, just as Eve was created from the side of Adam. And just as the union between Adam and Eve in that first marriage needs to be read typologically as referring to the union between Christ and the church, so every marriage is a sacramental sign of the union between Christ and the church. Now I mentioned the second way of understanding sacrament is the covenant itself, the bond of the covenant. When the husband and wife make the vow to be faithful to one another, they make the vow for the rest of their lives, till death do us part. When Jesus was asked about divorce, he again quoted Genesis 2, verse 24. Then he added this, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So the marital bond between a man and a woman has been forged by God himself. And it's an inseparable bond. Let no man separate. And that bond itself, the inseparable unity between the husband and wife in covenant, is a sign of the inseparable unity between Christ and his church, in the covenant between Christ and his church. So again, Augustine writes, commenting on Ephesians 5, Beyond any doubt, the reality signified by this sacrament of marriage is that the man and the woman united in marriage persevere inseparably in that union as long as they live. This is, after all, what is preserved between Christ and the church, that while Christ lives and while the church lives, they are not separated by any divorce for all eternity. Therefore, what Augustine is saying, just as virginity is a sign of eternity, has eternal significance, so too marriage has eternal significance, because it points to the eternal union of Christ and his church. Augustine's view of marriage, which is oriented by these three goods, the goods of children, fidelity, and sacrament, was the prevailing view of marriage throughout the history of the Western, of Western society, right up until very recently. There's a professor at law at the University of St. Thomas in Minnesota named Charles Reed, who's written a number of articles on this, and he traces this Augustinian legacy, this view of marriage consisting of these three goods, throughout the Western ecclesiastical tradition, but also throughout the Western legal tradition. Even in the Middle Ages, which continued to celebrate excessively, I think, virginity and celibacy, even then, marriage continued to be promoted as an inherent good, as divinely given and instituted in the way that Augustine had articulated it. 
In fact, they even went further by Augustine than Augustine. If you read the medieval theologians on marriage, they'll talk about the sacramental significance of sex itself. Because Paul says in Ephesians 5 that it's when the man and the woman come together as one flesh. It's that union of one flesh that signifies the union between Christ and the church. This is why in the Middle Ages only the consummated marriage was a sacrament. The marriage had to be consummated to be sacramental. From a legal perspective, Augustine's three goods of marriage defined the legal understanding of marriage all throughout Western society, right up until very recently again. Douglas Farrow, a Catholic writer at the University of McGill, says this, even in its civil dimensions, marriage was viewed as a threefold cord, the strength of which lay in the intertwining of these goods. A threefold cord intertwined children, fidelity, and sacrament. Professor Reeves, who I mentioned before, this university law professor, has looked at various case laws in the United States in the 19th and 20th centuries to look at how marriage was understood in those legal rulings. And consistently, again and again, it's understood in the traditional Christian view, defined by these three goods, children, fidelity, and sacrament. Now, this threefold cord started to become severed in the middle of the 20th century. In the 1960s, sexual revolution, the relaxation of divorce laws started to cut this thread of fidelity. However, even in the 60s and 70s, that third cord, which tied marriage to children, remained firmly intact. So just consider a few court rulings in the U.S. In 1971, there was a case that came before the Minnesota Supreme Court, Baker v. Nelson. Richard Baker and James McConnell were a same-sex couple that had applied for a marriage license. The court rejected the application. Listen to the court's ruling. The institution of marriage as a union of one man and one woman, uniquely involving the procreation and rearing of children within a family, is as old as the book of Genesis. This is the court's ruling in Minnesota in 1971. Likewise, a similar case a few years later, 1974, in Washington, a same, the same application is made, and again, the court rules in the same way. Listen to the words of the ruling. In the present case, it is apparent that the state's refusal to grant a license allowing the appellants to marry one another is not based on the appellant's status as males. The issue here is not that they're the same sex, but rather it is based upon the state's recognition that our society as a whole views marriage as the appropriate and desirable forum for procreation and the rearing of children. So at this point, that cord connecting marriage to children is firmly intact. However, it's severed two decades later in the early 90s. A case came before the Hawaiian Supreme Court, Bear v. Lewin, and the Hawaiian court defined marriage this way. Marriage is a partnership to which both parties bring their financial resources as well as their individual energies and efforts. 
In other words, the third cord connecting marriage to children has been severed. Marriage is simply seen as an economic and emotional relationship. In 1999, the Vermont Supreme Court followed Hawaii and Baker v. State. The court viewed marriage as a lasting relationship of mutual affection. Simply put, marriage is a lasting relationship of mutual affection. It was in that same year, 1999, that the Canadian Parliament upheld the traditional view of marriage by a vote of 216 to 55. So Canada was upholding the traditional view, but it soon was challenged. Just two years later, in 2001, the Law Commission of Canada published a report entitled Beyond Conjugality, Recognizing and Supporting Close Personal Adult Relationships. And the report found that Canada needed to change its laws to accommodate same-sex marriage. In 2002, the Ontario Supreme Court, in the, court, in the case Halpern v. Canada, concluded that the existing Canadian law discriminated against same-sex couples. In 2003, the Ontario Court of Appeals ruled that the existing marriage law in Canada needed to be redefined, needed to be redefined as simply a union of two persons. Then in 2005, Bill C-38 was passed, which redefined marriage in Canada as a lawful union of two persons to the exclusion of all others. Now we need to recognize something very important here to both the American and the Canadian contexts. I would argue that the courts and the legislatures did not reform the traditional view of marriage. I would argue instead that the traditional view of marriage had already been reformed and the courts and the legislatures simply recognized the new view of marriage. Augustine's three goods of children, fidelity, and sacrament, that threefold cord had already been severed. So given the new view of marriage, the law had to change. Now, the question I want to consider now is what view of marriage then has replaced the traditional Christian view of marriage, constituted by this threefold cord of children, fidelity, and sacrament. Well, I think the view of marriage and relationships in general that would resonate with many Canadians is what sociologists call pure relationship theory. Pure relationship. This is made popular by a sociologist from Britain named Anthony Giddens. Now, Giddens wrote two important books in the early 90s. The first entitled Modernity and Self-Identity. Self and Society in the Late Modern Age. The second book, published a year later, 1992, was entitled The Transformation of Intimacy, Sexuality, Love, and Eroticism in Modern Societies. Now you have to bear with me for a moment, for a moment because I'm going to get into Giddens' sociological kind of mumbo-jumbo here. So just keep listening. Hopefully it becomes clear. According to Giddens, Individuals living in late modern society, that's you and me, are engaged in what he calls a reflexive or self-referential project, which, quote, consists in the sustaining of a coherent yet continuously revised biographical narrative. Let me unpack that a little bit. 
According to Gibbons, in traditional societies, individuals were restricted by various customs and traditions and habits. Tradition defined our identities. But in modern societies, we've been freed. We've been liberated from such traditions and customs, which means we get to determine our identity. It used to be the case that our story, our identity, was written for us. Now we get to write our own story. We can become whoever we want to become. This sentiment, I think, is expressed in whenever you hear concerns about being authentic. Or that phrase you hear Britney Spears and other people saying, be true to yourself, be true to yourself. This is what Giddens is talking about. Now, given this absolute autonomy and liberty of the individual, how do we view relationships then? We can't avoid being in relationships, so given that we are all writing our own story, becoming who we want to become, how do we understand the nature of relationships with other people? Well, this is where the idea of pure relationship comes in. Giddens argues that we enter relationships for the purpose of furthering our own story. We're all becoming who we want to become, and you enter into a relationship because that relationship is going to serve your own interests and aspirations and dreams, whatever it may be. He calls this a pure relationship. Now again, a bit more of his uh, jargon, but listen to his definition of a pure relationship. <clears throat> a pure relationship refers to a situation where a social relation is entered into for its own sake, for what can be derived by each person from a sustained association with the other, and which is continued only insofar as it is thought by both parties to deliver enough satisfactions for each individual to stay within it. Now that probably sounded a bit dense, but again, all he's saying is that Relationships now are completely subjective. We don't understand relationships, we certainly don't understand marriage, using any kind of external criteria, objective criteria. We decide the terms of the relationship, what it looks like, what the purpose is. Now, Augustine's three goods, children, fidelity, sacrament, these are external. These define the relationship. It's not up to us to choose these things. But now relationships are completely subjective. Giddens says pure relationships are unanchored. They're free-floating. They exist solely for the purpose of promoting our own self-interest, our own stories that we're writing. Now, I remember a few years ago, I went to a, a wedding of two friends of ours. And they weren't Christians. And the woman that was presiding over the ceremony and her sermon to them encourage them to help one another achieve their own dreams and desires. In other words, she was viewing their marriage as a pure relationship. Nothing other than a pure relationship. Now, Giddens in his writing recognizes that such relationships are kind of tenuous. A pure relationship exists as long as each partner is getting something out of it. So as soon as you stop getting something out of it, well then the relationship needs to end. And Giddens counsels we need to move in and out of relationships quite easily. You need, to, you need to end a relationship very easily. As soon as it's not serving your purposes, get out. This is why Giddens warns against having children. Don't have children. He refers to children, in a nice phrase, as inertial drags. 
which prohibit an easy exit from a relationship. Even worse, he says, children tend to reveal gender imbalance in a relationship. Because with the introduction of a child, all of a sudden there's a new attachment, especially between the mother and the child. And this attachment to the child restricts the mother's freedom. She's no longer able to write her own story the way she wants. So he counsels against having children. Children upset the equilibrium in the relationship, upset the freedom of the relationship. Now given these potential pitfalls of gender imbalance created by children, it's not surprising that Giddens sees gays and lesbians as pioneers of pure relationships. In fact, in his book, The Transformation of Intimacy, he analyzes a lesbian relationship in order to explain what he means by a pure relationship. Listen to what one, what the, what one of the lesbian partners said in an interview. And if you didn't understand anything of what I said before about pure relationship, here it is. She says, quote, In a gay relationship, there aren't any rules. So you're just kind of making up your own as you go along. In a gay relationship, there aren't any rules, so you're just kind of making up your own as you go along. Now, Gideon sees such relationships as pure because there's no rules, and you can make them up as you go along. They're unanchored. They're free-floating. However, he also found that in lesbian relationships, there were lots of anxieties and doubts and depression. <laughs> So he concludes near the end of his book. Listen to this quote. Nobody knows if sexual relationships will become a wasteland of impermanent liaisons marked by emotional antipathy as much as by love and scarred by violence. There are good grounds for optimism in particular cases. But in a culture that has given up providentialism, that is, an understanding of the sovereignty of God, One's future has to be worked for against a background of acknowledged risk. End quote. Well, it's precisely this risk, precisely this uncertainty and anxiety and doubt that Ulrich Beck and Elizabeth Beck Gernsheim address in their book, which is entitled The Normal Chaos of Love. The Becks write this. It is no longer possible to pronounce in some binding way what family, marriage, parenthood, sexuality, or love means. What they should be or what they could be. Rather, these vary in substance, exceptions, and norms and morality from individual to individual, from relationship to relationship. Given this new reality, the Becks say the nuclear family has now been replaced by what they call the negotiated family. Relationships and families have to now navigate the normal chaos of love, which is fraught with anxiety, risk, and uncertainty. Another quote. Love is becoming a kind of fill-in-the-blank, which lovers must fill in themselves across widening trenches of biography, even if they are directed by the lyrics of pop songs, advertisements, pornographic scripts, light fiction, and psychoanalysis. End quote. Like the lesbian couple in Giddens' study, men and women in our culture now have to 
make up the rules as they go along. And in the absence of God's word, the new rules of love are set by pop songs, advertising, pornography, and psychoanalysis. So why mention these books, Giddens and the Becks? I mention them because these books were written in the early 1990s, and their authors describe what they saw going on around them in Western society. And what they were describing is actually nothing controversial. These are precisely the kinds of relationships that were being played out week by week in shows like Friends and Seinfeld. Forget about modern family. Think about what Friends and Seinfeld were saying about marriage and family and relationships. By the 1990s, marriage was widely seen as nothing more than what Giddens calls a pure relationship, an unanchored relationship. It was no longer anchored by the goods of children, fidelity, and sacrament. Relationships now are defined purely by the interests of those involved. They're purely subjective. We make up the rules as we go along. Well, given this view of marriage, this view of relationships in general, who's to say that two men can't have such a relationship? Therefore, why is it not recognized by law? So again, the view of marriage had already changed, and legal changes are simply a reflection of that change. Turning now to the legal context in, in Canada, when the Ontario Court of Appeals determined in 2003 that Canadian law was discriminatory because it did not recognize same-sex unions, it assumed that marriage was what Beck and Giddens were de describing as a relationship. It was a pure relationship view of marriage. Listen to the court's ruling. This is the Ontario Court of Appeal in 2003. Through the institution of marriage, individuals can publicly express their love and commitment to one another. Through this institution, society publicly recognizes expressions of love and commitment between individuals, granting them respect and legitimacy as a couple. This public recognition and sanction of marital relationships reflects society's approbation of, listen to this, the personal hopes, desires, and aspirations that underlie loving, committed, conjugal relationships. In other words, as the court saw it, marriage is simply a legal recognition of a pure relationship, as Giddens had defined it. No longer was it defined by the goods of children, fidelity, and sacrament. Well, how should we respond? In the name of this conference, how then shall we answer? Well, I say that we need to recover and cultivate Augustine's three goods of marriage, children, fidelity, and sacrament. Whatever the courts or the TV shows may say about marriage, marriage simply cannot be redefined because it's already being defined by God, and God defines marriage. If we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, we see there the biblical view of marriage. God created man and woman in his image. He blessed them, he commanded them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, 
<coughs> subdue it and rule over it. Children are a good of marriage. They're commanded in marriage. They're a fulfillment of the blessing and the covenant that God has established. Genesis 2 gives us more detail about the creation of men and women. There we read that Adam was put into a deep sleep. It's not good that man is alone. He took a rib from his side, he formed Eve, then he brought Eve to Adam, and he joined them together. The two became one flesh. This is the covenant of marriage which is established, which is forged by God. Marital love, fidelity within this covenant, is defined by the terms of the covenant. It's not defined by subjective aspirations or uh, whatever you want to get out of the relationship or economics or feelings or anything like that. Marital love is defined by the covenant vows and faithfulness to those vows. Even more, the fact that Paul says the marriage covenant is a reflection of the covenant between Christ and the church means that covenant faithfulness in a marriage for the husband means sacrifice. For the wife, it means submission. This is what covenant fidelity looks like. The reason for this is so that children will be born into the love, the nurture, the faithfulness of this covenant bond. Husband and wife become mother and father. I also think we need to recover this sacramental view of marriage. Paul writes, after all, in Ephesians 5, that marriage is a great mystery. In the Latin translation of the Bible, the word sacramentum is used to translate the Greek word mysterion. That's why I'm using the word sacrament. Don't be alarmed by that. Simply mean what Paul means. Marriage is a great mystery. If we go back to Genesis chapter 1, we read there that the triune God created man and woman in his image. Another Greek word. The Greek word for image is icon. This means that marriage and family is an icon of the triune God. Now in a beautiful sermon by another church father named Gregory Nazianzen on the Holy Spirit, Gregory compares the Trinity to the family because the family is an icon of the Trinity. God the Father is unbegotten. If we read in John's Gospel, we read there that God the Son, Jesus, is the only begotten of the Father. And then we read later on in John's Gospel that the Spirit proceeds from the Father. Now with that view of the Trinity, Gregory Gazianzen says, consider the family. Consider the first family. Adam is unbegotten, just like God the Father is unbegotten. Eve proceeds from the side of Adam, just as the Spirit proceeds from the Father. Seth is begotten of Adam, just as the Son is begotten of the Father. That means the family is an icon of the Trinity. The father in the family is an icon of God the Father. The mother in the family is an icon of the Spirit. Remember Jesus calls the Spirit the helper. Children are an icon of the Son. Marriage is also an icon of the mystical union between Christ and the Church. Again, Paul says in Ephesians 5, I quote, 
As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. The great mystery of marriage is that it's an icon of the union between Christ and the church. This means that the husband is an icon of Christ. The wife is an icon of the church. Now all of this seems very lofty, but it's actually quite practical. I'll give you an example. How many dads in the room? Put your hands. Dads, this means that you're an icon of God the Father. You are teaching your children in the world around you about God the Father by the way you lead and govern your family. It also means, dads, that you're an icon of Christ. You teach your children and the world around you about Christ by the way you love and cherish your wife. Think about that. <clears throat> now, what does all this have to do with so-called same-sex marriage? I've heard Doug Wilson refer to, to it as same-sex mirage. There's no such thing as same-sex marriage. Marriage, by definition, is prolific, it produces children, it's covenantal, and that means that covenant is defined in terms of God's word, with distinct roles and vows made by the husband, the woman, or sorry, the husband, the man, and the wife, the woman, and it's a sacrament, a threefold cord. It's a great mystery that signifies Christ in the church. It's an icon of the triune God. It's for this reason that Christians simply cannot recognize same-sex marriage. And the church simply cannot, it's impossible, to bless same-sex unions. The union of two men and the union of two women does not produce children. It cannot fulfill the biblical terms of the covenant. And most importantly, it's not sacramental. There's no correspondence between the union of two men with Christ and the church. And there's no icon of the Trinity there. Now let me say something else. I say I have a few minutes. Let me just say something else about singleness. Because I've just talked about marriage in very lofty terms. What about singleness? I think the three goods of marriage also apply to the single celibate life. It too is fruitful. It, too, is faithful. It, too, is sacramental. I agree with Ambrose and Augustine and the other church fathers who saw virginity as an eschatological witness to the resurrection life, to life in the world to come. Virginity is also a sign of covenant faithfulness to Christ, our true husband. Just like John the Baptist, a single man, Unmarried Christians are called to rejoice in the bridegroom. Read John chapter 3. I must decrease, he must increase. Actually, if you keep reading in John chapter 3, you'll get to the woman of the well. It's a very profound theology of singleness and Christ as the true husband in that chapter. But don't get distracted by that. Singleness is also fruitful in its own way. I decrease so that Christ may increase. The celibate single life is a gospel witness which God uses to add children to his family. And in that family, 
single men and women function as spiritual mothers and fathers. And I think we, we can all identify people in our church who serve as spiritual fathers and mothers in the church. So I think evangelicals need to recover a robust and theological, even sacramental view of marriage, but we also need to recover a more robust theological view of singleness. When the Sadducees asked Jesus about marriage and the resurrection, he rebuked them, saying, You know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, for in the resurrection there will be no marriage, we will all be like the angels. Marriage is a sacred, sacramental institution, but it's a temporary institution. The sacramental character of marriage reminds us that it is only temporary and it points to, however dimly, the eternal marriage relationship between Christ and his church. As Jesus said to his disciples at the Last Supper, so he says to us today, I will come again and will take you to myself, and where I am, you may be also forever. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.